Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful, cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies, so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now, Jim Lang. Uh, I want to get started right away, but again, especially for people who have not attended this fourth webinar uh, in the last year, I'd like to give you a quick uh, just highlights of the bio of our other speakers. So Larry Suedro is the Chief Research Officer at Buckingham Strategic Wealth, where he educates individuals on the benefits of evidence-based investing. Larry was among the first authors to publish a book that explains the science of investing in layman's terms, and he has since authored nine more books and co-authored seven books on investing, including his newest book, Your Complete Guide to Successful and Secure Retirement, Second Edition. Larry is a real expert in this field, as Jim mentioned earlier, uh, he, he's just really wonderful to join us and he gives really comprehensive answers to very topical and nuanced questions. So, uh, and he's had appearances on NBC, CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg Personal Finance and more. And Adam Yofan, as Adam, uh, as Jim mentioned before, leads the local office of Buckingham Strategic Wealth, uh, where Adam works with our mutual clients and with Buckingham clients. He navigates uh, clients towards financial clarity by defining goals and needs, reviewing assets, providing recommendations, implementing and managing portfolios, and tracking progress as they pursue well-defined goals. His goal is to protect a client's wealth. Okay, so would you like to get started, everyone? Let's do it. Okay, great. So let me start with, let's see, the first question from an anonymous attendee from the live room. They say, yesterday, you mentioned getting after-tax dollars in a traditional IRA converted to a Roth. However, Vanguard indicates that you need to convert money from a traditional IRA on a pro rata basis, i.e. you can't just convert the after-tax dollars to Roth IRA by themselves. Instead, you must convert a pro rata mix of pre-tax and after-tax dollars. Is there a way around this? I'll, I'll take that one. Um, Vanguard is right if they don't use my workaround. Um, there is a good workaround uh, that won't apply to everybody, but will apply to some. Um, that workaround is described in detail in the book, The Roth Revolution. And that will be for people who have money in their IRA and por a portion of that money is a after-tax dollars inside the IRA. And Ed Slott calls that the coffee and the cream. And what you need to do is to separate the cream, get it by itself, Vanguard is right. So what you end up doing, what we like to do is we actually like to set up a separate 401k, roll that money into that separate 401k. So the separate 401k has nothing but after-tax dollars inside a retirement plan that for some reason is a loophole, doesn't, um, isn't required to uh, comply with the pro rata rules. We make that conversion and then um, we are home free. I've done that many, many times with a lot of clients. If you have $2,000, $4,000, it might not be worth going through all the, the hoops. And I will tell you that there are some hoops that I haven't gone into. Um, but if you have $25,000, dollars $50,000 of after-tax dollars inside an IRA, then it, it is worth going through. And the reason why I spent a bunch of time on it yesterday is because and I consider that a great loophole, and we've been doing it for years and years, saving families tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, because that is the difference down the road, even on a $50,000 after-tax conversion without having to pay the tax. Um, but the proposed law, and who knows what's really going to happen, but we think there's a very good chance that a particular portion of the proposed law will not allow to do that 
will not allow us to do that effective December 31, 2021, which means we really only have between now and the end of the year to get that completed. So for example, for people who have that situation, we are actually going to, let's say, put those people ahead of the line, if you will, to get that part rolling because we don't want to miss that because if you can get a $50,000 Roth conversion for free, that would be you know, a terrific thing. Um, we have a description of that in our book, The Roth Revolution. If it's money in an after-tax, I'm sorry, it's money in an existing 401k, um, I would re refer you to, uh, shoot, it's I think IRS notice 214, 2014, which is the year it came out. I can't remember the, the number, but there is a number that basically allows your plan administrator to send money to a Roth and send money to an IRA separately. And you don't have to jump through all the hoops. Uh, but again, limit the deadline for both of those, assuming that the legislation does pass and it's retroactive to 1231-2021 is the end of the year. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Oh, um, for some reason, it's not letting me restart my video. I think maybe it's, it has to do with the permissions that the hosts are uh, giving us. So I will ask Eric to maybe look into giving me permission to stop and start my video. But in lieu of we that, can, at least I have sound. So yeah, we, can hear, we can hear you. So you can absolutely. Yeah, I know. Okay. So uh, I will start with the first question from the questions that were submitted in advance of the webinar. So uh, this question is from Bill in Valley Stream, New York. And I think Adam or Larry, you can decide which one of you, or if you'd both like to answer, you can decide who'd like to go first. So the question is, for clients nearing retirement with whole life policies, with cash value, not needing the death benefit and not wanting to realize taxable income in the short term, do you recommend uh, 1035 exchanges of whole life cash value to deferred longevity annuities? Or Jim, if you would like to answer it as well. I'll take a real quick crack at it. Assuming you really don't need the life insurance and you would prefer having a higher income for the rest of your life, then it makes, then it makes sense. Um, on the other hand, if there is a need for the life insurance, it probably isn't a great deal, if you will. Uh, the fact that it's a tax-free 1035 exchange is helpful. I don't want to claim to be an insurance expert, but very frankly, um, I am a fan of guaranteed income for life. This is one way that um, it's not going to be a taxable event like cashing in an IRA or something like that. And it's not one of these, you've already in effect paid the high fee by getting the cash value life insurance. So it might very well be a good thing. And I'd rather you do that than exhaust resources that might otherwise go for spending or to pay for a Roth conversion. Again, I don't know if Adam or Larry has their own opinion on that. We have not discussed this. Go ahead, Adam. Uh, I'll start with the planning. And Larry, I know you'll know a lot about annuities. Uh, from a planning point of view, I would say, what are your ultimate goals? Do you have any legacy goals, right? Because the life insurance can be left tax-free to heirs. So if you're thinking 1035, why wouldn't you 1035 into a UL product or something with a higher death benefit that could still be paid out tax-free? So I think you got to start with the end in mind. What are you trying to do? And maybe the annuity is a good product. I'll let Larry talk about that. Yeah, I'll just mention one thing on annuities uh, here. Uh, one, uh, but to begin, the advantage, as Jim rightly pointed out, importantly, you get an opportunity to do a 1035 exchange uh, here. You want, if you're going to do that exchange, you only want to buy a fixed payout annuity, which is what Jim was referring to when he said guaranteed payments for life. You don't want any variable annuities, which most of them have very high costs in there and they don't guarantee anything, of course. Uh, so that's a problem. The second thing is you want so a, basically a low cost, no commission uh, payout annuity. And a big mistake I think that most people make when it comes to annuities is buying annuities that pay out immediately. Now, 
So unless you're much older, well, you know, maybe 80, you know, in your 80s, you're much better off, I believe, doing what's called or buying what is called a deferred payout annuity. So the way to think about this issue is that when we buy a car, we have to have insurance on it, but we don't buy insurance for tire changes or oil changes. We budget for that. What we do buy insurance, of course, for is liabilities or severe damage uh, to the car. And most people uh, who understand insurance try to buy insurance that has as big a deductible as they can manage because that keeps the premium down. Uh, and so what you want to do with annuities is budget for your life expectancy. Uh, and then you buy a policy that goes, starts to pay out beyond that period. So you might, you're 65, uh, you buy a policy that starts paying out, say at age 85. Uh, that way you can put up a lot less of the cash. Uh, you maintain a lot more flexibility than with your other assets uh, in case you're needed for other issues. And you also, can minimize a big problem that a lot of people have. They don't want to buy annuities and, oh, I could die early and then I, you know, my heirs lost an asset by buying the deferred annuity that minimizes that regret issue and helps a lot of people overcome uh, that problem and buy an annuity, which does provide you with insurance against living beyond your life expectancy, which is what you're trying really to protect. Thanks, Larry. So, oh, great. So Eric fixed it so that I can turn my video back on. Okay. So the next question, and by the way, guys, add your questions here to the Q&A tab. Please don't hesitate. We need great questions. And um, I know that these guys have a lot to say about every question, but still like get your question in now. Um, so the next question is from Jerry in Pittsburgh, PA. Uh, he says, January 31st, 2020, I moved all IRA, 900,000, that I guess that's all of the money he had in his IRA, mutual funds to money market positions and have not yet gotten back into the market. What strategy do you suggest to get back in? I am 82. Well, I'll, I'll uh, tackle this. Uh, the first lesson I hope you learned is you should never try to time the market uh, I'll give advice if you don't believe me, which shows the evidence says people are very poor at timing the market and individual investors are even worse on average than professional investors because they tend more to let their emotions get in the way. So Peter, if, Peter Lynch uh, once said, more money has been lost anticipating bear markets than ever lost in bear markets. And he was probably the greatest mutual fund manager. And he was always 100% invested in cash uh, in the market because he believed you could not time the markets. Warren Buffett, many consider the greatest uh, manager of all time, advised investors never to try to time the market. But if you can't resist the temptation, then what you should do is buy when there's blood on the streets and everyone's panicking and uh, take the chips off the table when everyone is uh, you know, too exuberant. Uh, now you're faced with the problem, you made a mistake. Uh, the most important thing I think is when we make mistakes, admit it and agree you're never going to do that again. Uh, and then what you should do is set up a plan that uh, uh, helps you avoid um, that mistake by not taking more risk than your stomach can handle. In my retirement book, we have a chapter dedicated to asset allocation. It runs through several tables that can help you identifying your ability, your willingness and need to take risk. Uh, Adam uh, runs through those kind of exercises with all of our uh, clients when uh, they first become a client. So we, they are educated and are told, by the way, 
We get these severe bear markets about once every seven years on average, which means if you have a 65 year old with a 25 year, 30 year life expectancy, you're gonna to have to expect to live through another three or four of them. So we wanna make sure you're prepared and don't take excessive risk. All right, now what do you do once you uh, have the problem you've sold, what do you do? Uh, I would suggest sit down, write your plan and invest it all immediately. That's the smartest, most mathematically accurate way to give you the best chance of achieving your goal. Because every day you're out of the market, you're giving up an expected equity risk premium. However, lots of people can't do that because they intuitively feel the day they buy, the market will crash. And that's a problem. So uh, I suggest if you find yourself in that dilemma, you sit down with yourself or your advisor and you develop a plan that says something like, I'm going to put in one third today, one third next month, one third the following month or one quarter, this quarter, next quarter, next quarter until you're invested. Write it down. And no matter what the market does, you must follow that plan because your emotions will get in the way. And the last thing I'll tell you is this. If you do that dollar cost averaging, uh, if the, when you make your first investment, let's say you had this 900,000 and you've decided, okay, I'm gonna put in 100,000 every month, you should immediately root for the market to crash uh, because you're going to be buying more and you wanna buy at low prices. And if the market does go down, congratulate yourself on your brilliant decision not to put it all in at once, on the other hand, if the market does go up, which is much more likely, goes up about 70% of the years, which is why you want to always be in. Uh, if it does go up, congratulate yourself on admitting the error of your ways and at least getting started. Either way, you're a genius and you'll feel good about this. Larry's more generous than I am. I might, I might say, and I don't know what you would do with a prospect like that, Adam, but my instinct is that is such an egregious action. I'm not sure that I want to work with that individual. And I know that that's, a, no, seriously, I, I'm, I really want to help people. But if somebody does something like that, <clears throat> Larry says, okay, you promise I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to do this again. They probably have said that in the past and they did it again. So to me, it's almost like, you know, do you want to take somebody who's fallen off the wagon and... <laughs> Maybe I don't, um, but you know, Adam might be more generous um, than I am on that one. Yeah, I'll give you another hint. Uh, I don't know this person and I'm not gonna ask uh, his political association, but I'll give you another insight that is helpful. The academic research has actually looked at this question and how people make the mistake of allowing their political biases to impact their investments. So that if, the, I, if I had a bet, and uh, I'm not a betting person, but if I had to bet, I would bet this person was a Republican. The Republicans lost the election uh, and you now had a Democratic president. And now this person says, oh my goodness, they're gonna screw up uh, and I'm gonna get out of the market. Uh, and that's what tends to happen. So when you're almost always better off doing nothing. So what the research has found, when your party is in favor, if you're a Republican, you got better returns than Democratic investors under George Bush uh, and under Donald Trump, because you stayed the course when the markets went down during their presidencies. And Democrats tended to be more worried they'd screw up and they would be more prone to panic and selling. And under Obama, uh, the uh, Republicans got worse returns because they were more likely to panic and sell. And the same thing was happening probably under Joe Biden. So uh, this person can answer that question for themselves. They can self-identify. Maybe they made that mistake. It's something I've written about, but I hope everyone can benefit from hearing that so they don't make that mistake 
now or in the future. Thanks, Larry. That's really good advice. Um, the next question is from Ben in the live room. And I think I'm going to go ahead and say, Adam, if you could address this one. So Ben said, Jim mentioned a 40 point checklist for assets under management. Can someone expand on some of these points? Sure. Uh, I could even show it. Uh, I don't know, Eric or Erica, if you'll now enable my screen sharing capability. Uh, but while we're waiting for that, I'll just talk about this. So Buckingham has a 40-step process. Let me see if this works now. And I'll pull it up on the screen. And by the way, I don't expect anybody really to be able to read this, but you ask someone showing. Imagine a big 11 by 17 piece of paper. I'll zoom in a little bit. And you can see that we have four major sections. And I'm looking through the participant list. I see a lot of clients on here, so you're all familiar with this. But really, we've got four major stages of life, if you will. Um, and again, I'll keep it at a high level. But if you are working, we call that the accumulation phase. You move into this next phase transition where you have no earned income. You hit the distribution phase in your 70s where you get an RMD and you get social security. And last but last least, you die. So one thing I just wanna point out here when we talk about assets under management, this is color coded. And again, this is a Buckingham document, but when you work with Buckingham and Lang, you have a lot of overlap. What you'll notice is the color coordination. Blue are traditional investment related activities. You'll notice that only half of these items are blue. For example, one of the items we have here is explore Roth conversions. Well, obviously Lang Financial is great at doing this. So we don't need to do this for folks who work with Lang Financial. But just a couple of things, just so you understand, we always start with the end in mind and you'll notice that my answers on these panels tend to gravitate towards the planning. So just something that I'll talk about now, and the question may come up again. One thing way over here on the legacy side, we like to talk about is this step up in basis. That's one of our goals, but it's not free. Meaning you don't just get a step up because retirement accounts don't step up. So in order to get this benefit, we have to go way back to the beginning and do something we call asset location. And if you've been on the webinars or you're a client, you're reaping the benefits. It's owning the right holdings and the right accounts without belaboring the point we want to own equities in the accounts that get to step up like an individual or a joint account or even a Roth IRA, which is never taxed. So this is our 40 point process that we follow for our clients. Hopefully that's enough for you guys. Thanks, Erica. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, Eric, for enabling the screen sharing there so seamlessly. Um, and if anyone is interested in potentially working with the combination of our firm and uh, Adam and Buckingham uh, and getting to see the benefits of that 40-point plan in actuality for themselves, um, I believe that Sandy will be putting a link that you can click this time, I know if you were in the last webinar, the form was actually like, you know, there was a button that you could click. Uh, Zoom has a lot of benefits, but it's a lot harder to uh, actually offer things. So she'll hyperlink in her post. And if you click that, then it will take you to the same form that it would have taken you to if you had clicked the button in the offer in the last webinar. So just complete that form and Edie will give you a call and then she'll tell you about the next steps. But uh, I encourage anybody who's interested to do that right now because as I've mentioned a lot, I know you're probably sick of hearing it, but it's true. We've had a lot of requests already and we really wanna make sure that we get as many people as possible through at least you know the first few meetings to determine if there's anything that you need to do before the end of the year. Um, and so the sooner the better for any of that. Uh, okay, let me get to our next question. I'm gonna use one from the ones that were submitted before the webinar. Oh, I apologize because that is actually the live room document I opened. Okay, so the next question uh, is from Linda. 
And Linda asks, she says, I see a lot of info about appropriate asset allocation, stocks versus bonds, based on age and ability to handle risk. But what about guidance on appropriate sub asset allocation, small versus large cap international versus US growth versus value? Yeah, I'll uh, start off here. Uh, so the first thing uh, is mo most people, when they think about risk, uh, look at the age uh, uh, as certainly a consideration, but a common mistake they make when dealing with that is I'm 45, I'm gonna retire at 65, I have a 20 year uh, investment horizon. Well, that's wrong unless you plan to, to die the day you retire. You have to plan, assuming you're married, to uh, at least to the life expectancy of the second to die. And since half the people will live beyond that, uh, you need to plan, I would suggest, at least five years more than that. So for the average 65-year-old couple, you're probably talking you should be still planning for 30 years. So you do have a long horizon uh, to address and to plan for uh, there. That's one of the risks is you do live long and you want to make sure your portfolio lasts. But, you know, the investment horizon is important because it gives people the longer the horizon, the more ability you have to wait out a bear market. But that's only really true if you're in the accumulation phase. If you're in the withdrawal phase, you are going to be pulling money out. And obviously, that money, once spent, can't recover. So that has to be considered. Uh, the next point is your ability to take risk. Most people often only look at the, uh, their age and never consider their job. And that's really important to look at how it correlates with the economic risks of stocks. So if you have a group of say doctors, they who are the same age as a group of automobile workers, the doctors have much more ability to take risk because their income is probably much more stable than the automobile workers who might get laid off uh, and then have to withdraw money from their equity assets to live off of. So that's another thing. These issues that I'm describing are all covered in my book, You're a Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. Uh, and getting, uh, and then we also have this need to take risk, which the questioner didn't ask. So one of Swedro's laws of investing, I often try to remind people is, now, once you've won a game, you should probably stop playing. Uh, and so you want to look at somebody who spends $100,000 already has $10 million, let's say. Well, they don't need to take a lot of equity risk and therefore probably shouldn't be because their what's called marginal utility to wealth is very low. In other words, if the market crashed 50%, uh, that a loss like that would be unthinkable. They'd lose sleep uh, and not enjoy their life while doubling their money on their other hand probably doesn't change their life in any meaningful way. It's one of the really important things that Adam does in his first meetings with clients is figuring out this, these issues of ability, willingness, and need to take risks. And we use a sophisticated tool called the Monte Carlo simulator to help figure out what the right strategy is. Okay, let's come to the very specific question about how much you should have once you figure out between stocks and bonds, how much should be international and small versus large? Short answer is there is no right answer to that question. It has to be tailored to each individual person's Again, ability, willingness, and need to take risk. They're also willingness to accept the fact that if you own more small and value stocks than the market, your portfolio won't look like the market. And therefore, you have to be prepared to live with what's called this tracking variance. So if you're going to own a value-oriented portfolio like Warren Buffett does, you're going to have to be prepared to go for some long periods will, will underperform because all risk assets are going to underperform. And the same thing is true with small uh, stocks and international stocks. 
So that's really important to decide, do I care about matching the return of some popular index like the S&P 500, or do you try to create the portfolio that is most likely to allow you to achieve your goal? I suggest everyone should be in the second camp and not care whether they match the S&P 500, but some people do psychologically care, and then that's better for them to do that because they won't panic and sell when the S&P you know, uh, outperforms these other risk assets. We see that too often. Last comment uh, uh, in general, big picture is, I'm a big believer that markets are pretty efficient, meaning they, they're the best estimate of whatever the right price is, is where stocks are today. Uh, and that leads you to a simple conclusion. The US is about half of the global market capitalization. So you should have about half of your equities in US stocks, about three eighths in the, the rest of the developed world, about one eighth in emerging markets, and then simply rebalance, not trying to guess what will do well when well, because nobody knows. The evidence shows active managers trying to jump around tend to do very poorly. In fact, one study on what are called tactical asset allocation funds that jump between value and growth and US and international found that out of the 165 funds or so they looked at, not a single one added value. And that was even before considering taxes. As to small in value, that's really a personal decision. Again, I'd recommend my book, Your Complete Guide to Successful and Secure Retirement. We go through asking people questions about who should tilt more to small and value stocks, who should tilt more or less to international emerging markets, real estate, and all these other asset classes. So we don't have you know, time to go through every one of those. So I just would recommend that book because it does give you a good guide. And that's really what Adam does in the individual meetings that we have with clients. I actually have a question for Larry that is related. Um, I've talked about this issue with Adam I'm interested in what he, I think that everybody's interested in what Adam has to say, but I don't think I've talked about this specific issue with Larry. Larry, how would you change the asset allocation if somebody has a significant pension? And let's keep this, let's keep the issue easy and say that the pension is guaranteed for the life of the husband and the wife. Yes. Let's just say it's a $50,000 a year pension. Yeah. And as most of them do, doesn't go up with inflation. Yeah. How would that change your thinking on the asset allocation? Let's just even say between stocks and bonds without getting into small international, yeah, et cetera. It's a great question. Uh, there are lots of uh, complex answers that you can get. And I think you don't need any complexity. This is much simpler. The way the complex uh, finance gurus take this question is they say, okay, I've got this asset this annuity stream, this pension, say it's $50,000 a year, and whatever, say, a bond yield is discounted at that rate, and that gives you a present value of that, and that tells you I've got that in a safe bond. That's one way to do it. But bond yields are shifting all the time, and that's going to change then your asset allocation, and most people don't know how to do the math behind that anyway. There's a much simpler way, and the way I would do it is simply to do it this way. Let's think about a corporate pension as just another form of social security, if you will. So Jim, let's say you uh, wanted to spend $100,000 a year, all right? That was your nut. And the academic research, which again, we discuss in that book right up front, uh, you're, a, you're a complete guide to a successful and secure retirement. There used to be this rule that you had a 4% safe withdrawal rate. What that meant is if you had a million dollar portfolio, take 4% of that, that would be 40,000. And I could withdraw that every year and adjust it for inflation. So if inflation was 10% to keep the math easy, I will withdraw 40,000 this year, 
44,000 next year. And as long as I kept my portfolio reasonably balanced between stocks and bonds and didn't get too conservative, say at least say a 40% equity allocation and no more than maybe 60, you had a very low chance, non-zero, but very low chance of running out of money. So that was the safe harbor rule. So my, today, unfortunately, because stock valuations are much higher, the PE ratios are higher, and that means future expected returns are lower, and clearly bond yields are much lower, that 4% rule we think today is much closer to 3% for a 65-year-old. Obviously, you get older, you could withdraw more because your life span is less. So today, Social Security, uh, let's say if you had that million, you could withdraw 30,000, okay? So now you don't need 100,000, you only need 70,000. So now you sit down with Adam and saying, okay, Adam, I need to generate $70,000 a year. What's asset allocation that meets my unique ability, willingness, and need to take risk gives me the best chance of achieving my goal without taking too much risk. Now, let's say you had Social Security of 40,000 and a pension of 30, now you only need 30,000 a year. So you can get by with a much lower equity allocation and Adam would recommend you consider that, uh, but then you have other issues like, do I have bequeathed desires and who am I investing for? But that's how you think about it. It's a reduction a pension is a reduction in your need to take risk. Don't think about it from the asset side. Think about it as a reduction in your spending needs. And that makes the problem much simpler. Thank you. Awesome. Now, Jim, I have a question for you that was asked in the last webinar that we didn't get a chance to ask, uh, that I didn't get a chance to ask you. So, um, Paula said, this is a follow-up from yesterday. Uh, so I understand if you can't answer it in this session, in the estate planning session, but it's, it's about Roths. So uh, does the proposed legislation that would prohibit Roth conversions of after-tax after IRAs apply only to the original after-tax contributions, i.e. basis, or does it apply to the entire IRA balance, i.e. basis and earnings? Well, the earnings... The earnings of an after-tax dollar, either in an IRA or a retirement plan, um, are just plain old IRA and retirement plan. So it doesn't matter if they change the law or if they don't change the law, all the growth, the dividends, the capital gains, the appreciation, et cetera, that part is all going to be taxable. So just to Make, let, let's just keep it simple. You put $5,000 in a non-deductible IRA, it grows to $10,000. That $5,000 growth on the 5,000 that came in as a non-deductible IRA is that's plain old IRA and, any, and whether the law passes or doesn't or the expected rate or the expected um, effective date becomes irrelevant, but I'm interested in getting the 5,000 of after-tax to get to a Roth uh, before year end, because that's when we think the effective date is going to be, even if the law passes after year end. The growth on after-tax dollars inside an IRA or a retirement plan is the same as plain old IRA or retirement plan. You know, there's no special treatment for the growth of that money. But what I'm interested in is getting the after-tax dollars to a Roth and that way future growth will be in the Roth, it'll be tax-free, or if you do nothing, or if you miss the deadline, then the $5,000 is always gonna be after tax, but then the growth on that will be traditional IRA, 401k, which will be fully taxable, where if we do this, that then we have future growth being tax-free because it is it then becomes part of the Roth. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Okay, so I again want to encourage people to add your questions here. We do have some, thank you, Ching. I will get to your question right after this one, but we usually have even more questions. So 
more questions, please, please, please. Uh, these guys really love to answer questions. And I really like to hear, you know, the answers to a lot. A lot of times there are questions I never even thought about. Um, and their answers are very interesting. So uh, please enter your questions. You can either do it in the chat or the Q&A box, either one. But I actually dug up a question from a prior webinar from uh, Steve, which I think uh, is very applicable. And I'll ask Adam to answer this first. And then if uh, Jim and Larry want to chime in, please be my guest. But um, Adam, what should investors do with low interest rates and or inflation? Well, okay, I'll start and uh, then I'll let Larry chime in. So uh, again, I'll start uh, to talk about the planning first and say, let's talk about your required rate of return, Larry says, the need and ability and willingness to take on risk. Uh, starting at the high level, we are not fans of reaching for yield. And all of the Nobel Prize winning evidence says, don't go out and buy, for example, high yield bonds or corporate bonds are more correlated to stocks. Yes, you're picking up some extra yield, but it's not worth the risk you're taking. So we start with that plan if you will, the asset allocation and those parameters, whether, you're, whether the plan says you wanna be 70, 30, 60, 40 at that stock and bond level, if you will. But we're fans of alternatives, right? And an alternative, if you will, is something that is not correlated to stocks or not necessarily correlated to bonds. And at least at Buckingham, we've got a handful of options. And because we're fiduciaries, we operate with your best interests at heart, we don't say that you need to have these or not. And at least within our practice, I would say probably half our clients incorporate some or all of these types of alternatives. And that could be a lending portfolio, it could be real estate, it could be reinsurance, it could be a variety of things. So I'll start with that. And that's how we're trying to beat this problem of yield. We operate on a total return basis. So when people come to us and say, I like to buy dividend paying stocks, uh, we're not fans of that because, as you know, a dividend is just returning your money to you, right? So we, we skew, if you will, towards that overall asset allocation, incorporating non-correlated alternatives. And I'll let Larry talk about that because he's written close to 20 books and has covered this ad nauseum. And I'm going to let the experts speak. Yeah. So let me address it this way. Um, in our typical stock and bond portfolios, as Adam said, we want the bond portion of the portfolio to act like the anchor that keeps the ship safe in port in the midst of a storm. And that means you don't want it to be going down when your equities are being slammed by the markets, whatever the cause may be, a 911 event, a COVID crisis, a great financial crisis, an oil embargo, a war. Uh, and if you look at uh, the, uh, or what most people think of alternatives like high yield bonds or real estate, when you get a 2001, a 2008, a COVID crisis, those go down sometimes as much or more than equities do. Uh, so just when you need that safety, they get hit a, a just as hard, and that can cause you to exceed your tolerance for risk, panic and sell, as one gentleman told us he did last year. Uh, so that, that's a real problem. Second problem that comes out of that is you can't rebalance a portfolio if both parts are down. Uh, on the other hand, because we only buy with the bond portion of the portfolio, only the safest bonds, uh, either AA or AAA rated municipals, CDs or government bonds uh, issued by the government, uh, by the treasury, they tend to go up during bear markets because you get flights to quality. So when COVID was hitting, and the markets dropped 35%, bonds may have gone up 10%. Uh, in 2008, when stocks dropped 60%, bonds had their best years ever. So Adam was able to take the part of the bond portfolio, one, instead of the portfolio dropping 50%, 
And by the way, junk bonds dropped 50, 60, 70%. Real estate dropped, you know, somewhere in the 30, 40, 50%, depending upon the type. Instead, Adam was able to sell assets, which had gone up, which first of all, reduced the overall loss, and then was able to sell high and buy low, buy more stocks when prices were lower, and they benefited greatly when the markets recovered. So that's really important. However, having said that, uh, we find there are clients who can take more risk, and, but choose not to, uh, and, but want to see if they can goose their returns a little bit without taking equity-like risk. And today, what you're seeing is a dual problem. Not only do you have much lower interest rates on the safe bonds, but here's something that I would bet almost nobody on this call is likely to know. Uh, say you, a 10-year bond you buy today is actually issued by the government is much riskier than a 10-year bond you would have bought 15 years ago, uh, even though it's the same 10-year maturity. When yields are lower, what's called the duration of that bond uh, gets much higher. So uh, a 1% move in interest rates will cause a bond with a 2% yield to move in price much more than it would if the same bond had a 5 or 6% yield. So what's called duration or effective maturity has become much longer. A 10-year bond might have had a duration of say, I'm just making this up eight years, 10 years ago, and now its duration is gone up you know, to a higher number, nine or 10. So the numbers are there. So bonds are much riskier than they were, and yet you're getting much lower yields. We think there's a good solution for people who can take some more risk. And that's to take some portion of their bond portfolio and move it to alternative assets, which have much higher yields, partly because they're illiquid, partly because they take other kinds of risks. Now, if the risks are different, then that's a form of diversification. So their risks may not show up at the same time as the risk of stocks. So I had to mention reinsurance risk. So insuring against, for example, hurricanes and earthquakes, bear markets don't cause hurricanes and earthquakes, so they're not correlated. And most of the time uh, when stocks go down, reinsurance tends to go up because most years it goes up, but you will have bad years whenever we have lots of hurricanes or earthquakes. Just so everyone wants to know, Warren Buffett is one of the largest investors. He owns one of the largest reinsurance companies. And the fund we use partners with 10 of the largest reinsurance firms. We think that product today has an expected return in the low double digits. Uh, and it has an expected volatility of about half of the stock market. So we think that's worth considering, but it is risky but it's different risk. We also invest in what Adam referred to as alternative lending. Here, there are two funds we use, one that makes loans to middle market companies uh, that aren't big enough to go to the public markets. The banks have abandoned that space since 2008 because they had to raise capital due to the changes required of them by Dodd-Frank and uh, regulations from the treasury. Uh, and today, a fund we use called Cliffwater uh, Middle Market Lending Fund, it's cranking out regularly 65, 70 basis points a month, uh, has very little risk in terms of the longer term, 20-year evidence of less than 2% defaults and about 70% recovery rates. So if you have 2% defaults and you recover 70%, you lose 60 basis points a year. Uh, even in an 08, we believe the fund would have lost only maybe mid single digits. So much less than equities, but it won't go up uh, like a safe bond would. So in the COVID crisis, when treasuries were going up five to 10%, depending on maturity, this fund lost about 3%. That's a lot better than the 35% or more stocks were dropping. 
And yet the expected return today is seven to eight percent, which is higher than the expected return to say the S&P 500. Uh, we also invest in one other fund, which makes uh, loans to uh, consumers and small businesses. That's been cranking out returns in the roughly 10% range. And we think that has limited downside risk about maybe 8% or so in a really severe economic cycle. Uh, but again, both the Cliffwater and the Alternative Lending Fund, they make loans based on very short-term interest rates. So they have no inflation risk. So you're picking up a big premium over safe bonds and you're getting rid of the inflation risk that a typical bond portfolio will have. In return, you're taking on some different risks that may not correlate well uh, with stocks, but they are risks, they're not free lunches, but the premiums are large. I think personally, they are, right now are the safest investments relative to the expected return that you can find because they're equity-like with much less risk. And if you combine a few of these in a portfolio, the risks are even less because they're not correlated either. So we think their correlation of a portfolio of these is only about one fourth the volatility of a global equity portfolio. But they're not liquid. Uh, they're only able to run through what are called interval funds, which gives you the ability to withdraw a minimum of 5% every quarter, but you could be restricted to that if everyone wants out at the same time. So Larry, I have a follow-up question. As you know, I invest my money 100% like we are recommending, and I am myself a Buckingham client, and I kind of bought the Kool-Aid on the invest alternative investments. And let's just limit the, this discussion to the two, and without distinguishing between consumer and business lending, let's call that one type of alternative. Right. <clears throat> and then the other type is reinsurance. Right. Now, lending money to, let's say, um, at a higher rate to consumers or to businesses in an area that the banks aren't really covering, that makes perfect sense to me. I'm all in. I want to do it. Reinsurance is scarier to me because, you know, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. Um, I actually believe in global warming. Um, we have, you know, all kinds of problems with the roads and the infrastructure that global warming is, is causing. The states aren't going to be putting in this much. I think that there's going to be massive claims on insurance companies. And if I'm right, then the reinsurance companies are going to get hurt. And Adam said, no, 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 dummy. You don't know more than the people at the reinsurance company. They know a lot more than you. You should just do the standard advice. And I didn't like it one bit, but I actually listened to the advice because if, if it was me on my own and I'm a client like, like all your other clients that bring my own personal biases into it, I would have had all my, let's say between those two, I would have had everything in the, let's say, alternative lending and nothing in the reinsurance. Um, but Adam convinced me, no, no, no. You know, the people doing this understand the risks a lot better than you. You have no specialized knowledge. Just go with what we are recommending. I gritted my teeth and did it. How would you address when people have let's say no specialized knowledge. I mean, it's right. not like, well, I worked for the company for 20 years. You know, I know the inside very well. I'm just doing this based on gut instinct and I don't know anything more about global warming than, than anybody else, probably a lot less. How would you, let's say, handle the, what your gut instinct is telling you versus let's say a more objective answer. And by the way, I am, I'm very big on alternatives. Makes a lot of sense to me, you know, having money in one or 2% bonds when inflation is five or 8% uh, doesn't sound like much fun at all. On the other hand, I don't want to be all equities. So I like the idea of alternative, but I guess I'm just 
asking a nuanced question between the alternatives and specifically between something that my gut instinct says no and the other one where my gut instinct says yes? It's a great question, uh, Jim, and I, I'm going to try to give you a three-part answer to it to help educate and help people think about it. So the first part of the answer is there is no right portfolio except the one you are most likely to stick with. Okay, that's really important. So if you're going to panic and sell because emerging markets have done poorly now relatively for 10 years, then you should never own emerging markets in the first place, because that's exactly what will happen. You will panic and sell. And that's just typically when they, the markets turn around because they've done so poorly, prices are low and then means expected returns are high. U.S. stocks have far outperformed emerging markets for the last decade, and now U.S. stocks are trading at record high PEs, and emerging markets are trading at basically high single digits, maybe, or very low double digits, so right around 10%. So their expected returns are much higher. Same thing is true of value stocks uh, versus growth stocks. Over the very long term, Value stocks have outperformed significantly. But from 17 through 20, they went through their worst period ever. And if you're going to panic and sell because of that, then you shouldn't own them. Same thing happened in the late 90s. So if you are worried about reinsurance and you listen to Adam and then you get two or three years in a row of big hurricanes, earthquakes, and then you're going to panic and sell then I think you made the wrong decision. You would, you would be better off not owning it unless you're able to not engage in what's called resulting, which is judging the performance by the outcome instead of the decision-making process, the quality of that process. So that's the first thing. And that gets to where I, I was talking about earlier, uh, the question about small and value and international. The right portfolio is the one you are going to be able to stick with. So that's rule number one. To give you uh, part two of the question, the most sophisticated investors, or at least among them, are people uh, like the Yale and Harvard endowments. And the typical portfolio for individuals might be 60% stocks and 40 bonds. Theirs is much more like 30% equities 30% or more alternatives, and then the rest bonds, depending upon their objectives. My portfolio looks more like that, okay, uh, as well. Uh, and a simple logical reason for doing it that way is the basic belief, which I know, or at least believe you have, is that when it comes to picking investments or stocks and timing the market, you're not any smarter than the market. And the best strategy is to just be like an indexer or a more sophisticated version, not try to pick stocks, time the market, but just be in the asset classes, taking the risks you want to take. All right. Now, if you believe the markets are efficient and therefore you choose passive investing, the logic must be that all risky assets have to have the same risk-adjusted re expected return. Because if asset A, stocks, has a much higher expected return than reinsurance, then what will happen? Money flows out of reinsurance into stocks, driving their valuations up, and the expected returns then go down. And the expected returns to reinsurance has to go up because you paid less to get the same premiums until we get an equilibrium. So my belief is once we consider all risks, including illiquidity, for example, which is a risk, I can't get my money. You should get compensated for that. All risky assets have similar risk adjusted returns. So I should want to diversify across as many of these as I can identify where the research shows you are compensated for that risk. And reinsurance is one of them. There's evidence of 150 years of reinsurance companies, beginning with Lloyd's of London, for example, even further back than that. Uh, now, Warren Buffett is one of the smartest investors in the world, I think you would agree, right? 
I would. And he runs one of, if not the largest reinsurer in the world. Let me add this. The reinsurance companies there have more scientists analyzing all the data about client change than all the governments in the world combined. They have the top mathematicians, weather scientists, all that, because they're putting all their capital in this one risk uh, related to climate change. So they're all analyzing it and they update their models, you know, all the time based as new information comes. So what happens is if the global warming is increasing risks, first of all, that takes many decades for that to show up. The weather is different than climate and climate takes a long time, for example, to change. So as a good example, you're worried about hurricanes. We heard the same things from in 2004 and five, we had seven big hurricanes hit in those three, two years. And there were losses taken by the reinsurance industry. The next 11 years, there wasn't a single class three hurricane, category three hurricane landing in the US. Clearly the climate wasn't changing that much. There are all kinds of factors there. And what happened is the best returns to the reinsurance industry happened in those 11 years because lots of people fled. What's happened in the last few years is we had another bout uh, in 18, 19 and 20 of some hurricanes uh, and losses, windstorm. And what do you think happens to premiums on home insurance and fire insurance and flood insurance and all these kinds of insurance. They, of course, have gone way up to reflect the losses. The insurers go to their state regulators, show their balance, and we need to raise prices or we're exiting the market. Not only that, but you get huge changes in underwriting standards. By that, I mean, for example, after, in 1993, after Hurricane Andrew wiped out the town of Homestead, Florida, there was massive changes in construction laws in Florida. So you either had to have like a concrete building and every you know, home had to have storm windows. So even if you had the same hurricane, you wouldn't have had the same losses. In California, because this fire peril, which had never been seen before happened. Premiums are up 60% if you can get the insurance, number one. Number two, if you're in a zone where there is some fire risk there, you're living in an area where the climate is drier and subject to more risk, you cannot get insurance unless you've cleared trees within 30 feet of your house and all shrub and then another 30 feet out beyond that, shrubs and trees. So you can't have trees within 30 feet of each other. Uh, and that's what enables you to get insurance. Uh, same thing, underwriting stands in Florida have continued to tighten. So what I'm saying to you is this, the insurance companies, as Adam told you, are just as well aware of the risks that you're talking about. They are pricing them. Four years ago, when we invested clients in that fund, the expected no loss return was 15%. So if there was zero losses, but of course no one expects zero losses, you have a bell curve distribution and the average or the mean loss was 8%. So we were projecting an expected return of about 7%, but we knew it could be minus 10 or but it can't be more than 15 because that's zero losses, right? So it's somewhere in that kind of range. And we had uh, good years before 17 and 18, 19, 20 had some significant, though not huge losses, nothing like what stocks had in COVID or 08. Uh, I think 20 was a positive year. Fund was up about 5%. This year, it's going to be slightly negative, I think. But today, the expected return, because premiums have gone way up, no losses, 23%. If you expect losses still of about 
or let's say, Jim, you're right, we're worried, much more loss will be 50% higher than what all the models are showing. And it's gonna be 12, you would still expect a 9% return. But what happens is people panic and sell, capital flees, and then of course, premiums go up, just like when stock prices get hit, people flee and PEs fall. So right now would be the best time literally ever to invest. But I would tell you, if 2022 is another year of hurricanes and they happen to hit and you're going to sell, then don't buy. I have a uh, significant allocation to reinsurance because it's one risk. It's 5%, let's say, of a portfolio in a really bad year. You know, not the worst year that could happen, but a really bad year that hasn't happened in 25 years. Maybe it goes down 20%. Well, 5% and 20% is 1% on the portfolio. I think that's a risk worth taking to get a 9% expected return that has no inflation risk, no relation to bonds or stocks. So those are the three pillars I would build the strategy on. I have a significant allocation to it. Lots of hedge funds, endowments do. They're increasing their allocation because they're running to risk because the premiums have gone up. They want to buy when the risk is highest or at least perceived highest because they expect the return to higher. Now, that doesn't mean you should add more. If you're targeting 3% or 5%, you know, stick with it. Last comment. If you're targeting 3% and now the premium is much higher. Say, oh, great, let's go to 5%. I wouldn't do that because you said at the beginning when you met with Adam, I think I'm not as comfortable with reinsurance. I don't want five. You talk me into some, but let's keep it small. So for you, 3% is the right number. For Adam, maybe in his own portfolio, five is right. For somebody else, zero might be right. We hope you've enjoyed this special edition of Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. If you've had your questions answered and would like to schedule an appointment to meet with Jim, call our offices at 1-800-387-1129. That number again is 1-800-387-1129. And if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming virtual events, Go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash webinars. That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash webinars to reserve your virtual spot today.